0: Do people follow leaders? Well, actually, people follow story. Real leadership comes from being skilled in managing beliefs through knowing how to own the story. On today's podcast, we have Don Schminka, author and coach to tens of thousands of CEOs. You'll really enjoy his experience, attitude, and counterintuitive approach to get people to follow you from anywhere. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere. I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And on the East Coast, we've got our amazing co-host, Dr. Virginia Bianco, Mathis. How are you doing, Ginny? This oh, afternoon, I think.
1: Oh, uh, great. I'm doing great now that we got my mic all straightened out.
0: All right, great. So- well, today on the podcast, we have best-selling author, speaker, and course creator. Don Schminka. Don has had his books translated into over 12 languages and has presented in front of more than 10,000 CEOs. Who does that? Yeah. Don is a former MIT and John Hopkins Institute researcher turned organizational strategic development consultant. Guy, CEOs bring in when all the experts fail. Don, welcome to Team Anywhere. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Don is on the East Coast near Baltimore, kind of where you are, Jenny. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we always start with this question. So what surprised you the most over the last two years when it comes to virtual leadership? And when you say virtual, I mean like remote leading? Yeah, remote leading. You know, There were definitely companies that went completely remote. And then there are some that are just a little bit remote and some that are in between.
2: What surprised me, because I was working with, uh, you know, numbers of companies, and I probably did, I don't know, maybe 150 speeches during the COVID remote isolation, Mm -hmm. and uh, it came up a lot. Like, how do I lead? How do I maintain culture? How do I make sure everybody's aligned on strategy and where we're going? And I had to remind them that they had forgotten how to do that. In other words, this was not new, and that we've been leading remotely for thousands of years you know, I mean, you know, military groups, religious groups, they've been global and doing fine. So all of a sudden, our employees can't show up at the office, we start freaking out. So we had to start teaching them how to do human grouping behaviors, you know, because basically, we're a tribal species. So we Mm -hmm. like to group, and then are using symbols appropriately, rituals appropriately, or magical myths appropriately. And it was like, a lot of them had no idea. They were like, Oh, my God, I mean, they, they thought it was brilliant, but they realized that I hadn't really focused on any of that. And I said, it's not your fault. We don't teach any of this in MBA school. <laughs> so, you know, none of this, you have to be like an anthropology or an archaeologist or something to learn these things. But I said, they were easy and you can craft and experiment with these things. So we got a lot of good traction out of that. And people became more, I think, confident, better leaders and their remote workforces were more aligned and actually more productive sometimes.
0: Well, you've got to share with us because I'm not sure all of us know, me included. What are magical myths? Oh, yeah. Mythologies have always inspired
2: and aligned groups. Because, you know, one of the things we try to teach CEOs, because I train maybe 700 CEOs a year. And then we go into corporations to implement all this. maybe so a dozen different companies every now and then throughout the year. And I think that what we're finding when we do all that, either in our training or our corporate work, is that they forgot that people follow story. And it's kind of interesting because one of the things I come up with is, they, how come you know Steve Jobs dies? They write books about his leadership style and they say he's an asshole, which then begs another dangerous question, which no one ever asked. Why is somebody following an asshole?
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay,
2: like that yeah. never comes up in any freaking investigational leadership. But I thought, you know what? <laughs> let's bring it up, shall we? Yeah. And, but the interesting thing is that it really shows that we're probably teaching leadership all wrong in,
1: mm-hmm. our,
2: books in our books because – Maybe people aren't following the leader. Maybe they're following the story the leader represents. And so about 20 years ago, we started developing with companies how to create what we call compelling saga or winning Ooh. saga. And that's where the myth comes from. You know, you take your strategy for winning and how you're going to do it. And then you craft a drama around that, which is, again, another thing that goes in the opposite direction of what we're teaching is that, you know, standard practices is oh, will get rid of drama in your company. And I'm like, God, the next time you hear somebody tell you that, ask them for their peer-reviewed medical journals. Never experimented or researched. You don't get rid of drama. Dramalessness is a pathological condition.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Without that, it will become ill and some will die. Tell me why you want to do this to your employees again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Again is the key word there.
2: (laughs) So the mythology came out of that. And when we started using it and getting people to create drama, not the many dramas that are so... Functional, but the strategic dramas, the winning dramas, that's what people are following. And, mm-hmm. uh, and in each case, and that's why they were doing at Apple, they were following what Steve was up to. You know, he was up to, you know, impact, put a dent in the universe and right. that's it.
1: Yeah, it's what he embodied. Yes. And sometimes, a couple of times a week, he'd go crazy and yell and scream and yet they still saw the aura mm. of what he was trying to move them all for. And that's what you follow. Yeah. So then if
0: if you would write the book on why to fall an asshole, you would then say, because the asshole had a compelling saga. It was all about the story. It was all about the emotions he was in the people at Apple. Is that what you would say?
2: Yeah. I mean, there was a strategic journey ahead that you trusted this person to take you to. And you were following that journey, that story they represented, that they captured and it's nice if they're a nice guy. That's even better. But if they're not, you're going to follow them anyway, because they have defined for you what winning means and you agree with that and how you're going to do it. So that's why throughout history, we've seen these episodes where these assholes were leading the creation of great civilizations or companies and you know, things like that.
0: Can you give us an example of a CEO that you've been working with lately where you crafted a strategic journey? and what that journey was about and what was the impact to the employees
2: well i can't mention names but i mean there were times in fact i have a new book coming out on entrepreneurship and several of the people i've worked with are in the book and so you know like one gentleman i'm sure he wouldn't mind me mentioning his name marco costa rubia worked with him and he had created you know an inc 500 level performance company and he shared with this and it's in the book there was an issue of like him looking at wait man maybe it's not about me maybe it's about helping other people and <laughs> When he got that transition, it became magical. And so his performance results, of course, are, you know, legendary within, you know, the Inc. 500. But this is a moment where a leader has to look at themselves and say, you know, who am I and what am I representing? Or are they really following me? And is that really that important? Or are they following what up to?
0: Right. Great. Now, can you tell us, what's your story? Like, what's your background and how did you come to a place where you are presenting in front of more than 10,000 CEOs? How much do you want to know? <laughs> We've got 20 Just more minutes left.
1: Just the secret sauce, Don.
0: <laughs> Just hit the rituals and <laughs> the symbols and we're good. I never meant to be doing this.
2: I almost dropped out of high school. I almost didn't make my senior year until the police told me I had a <laughs> senior year.
1: <And> then I, <laughs> there, there's a compelling story for you.
2: I'm like I don't know when going would repeat this year. So in two months I did the whole senior year and then I got out. And then I, I was in rock bands and stuff, and that's you know a thing I was doing. But I wasn't sure where I wanted to go next. And I noticed that you know I was working at my uncle's gas station. A lot of the guys driving the fancy cars had educations. So I thought maybe I should get an education. That's so, I started in a community college up the street, and they didn't care whether I showed up or not. They had my money, so I'm like, well, this is different. And it was interesting. I ran into a couple of people that, like one professor, retired, and he was just teaching for fun. He was a physicist from MIT, and then somebody, Betty Sarr was her name. She came out of be her husband at MIT, went to MIT, and they were like, why don't you apply at MIT? And I'm like, what is that? I didn't even know.
1: There's oh, my god! trade
2: school? I mean, what is this thing? And so... I went through they put me through a battery of tests and then I got in and that, then everything went crazy and I started in engineering, computer science I started getting fascinated with AI in the early days and then got involved with planetary physics so that was great I ended up working on nuclear trident missile program that was fun and then automating the Harvard MIT biomedical lab but it was in the biomedical research that I oh by the way I have ADHD so that probably explains why I'm Doing half a dozen things at one time. The human area became fascinating. So that's what took me to Hopkins. And then I began studying human grouping behaviors and right. how humans administer to each other in terms of developing these groups. And so that's when I got involved with the executive MBA area. And they started finding that, you know, we should be researching or they were asking questions around could leadership be primal? Could it be biological? Because Oxford gave me permission to use this ancient manuscript. And, you know, 700 years ago, like the samurai were running into the same organizational problems that we are today.
1: Fascinating. And,
2: and as I went around the world, every executive team was having the same <laughs> issues. So that's where the biological question came up. And That's when I started doing it. And then that's, of course, I published the code of the executive. It went off into dozen languages and I was asked to teach and began applying these biological methods and companies and their sales started going up two or three times or ten times. And that's we started funding our own research. So I started doing expeditions around the world, hanging out with people that were smarter than I was, and they were teaching me what they were learning in their research. And so today I'm really grateful to have access to some of the brilliant minds and they're willing to, you know, help me understand more around our species and how to lead it. So That was a long answer to how I got here.
1: (laughs) No, that's fascinating. And you feel or you're channeling it into then what it is you're teaching. So what's the fundamental difference, would you say, between how you go about trying to teach leadership versus if I picked up a typical textbook?
2: I think we like to focus more on when you do a Google Scholar search on management theory failure, you get like four or five million hits. And when I train CEOs, like they've never heard this before. So I get on going show them. And then they're shocked.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then I share with them, well, why does every bankrupt company have all the best selling books on their shelves? Mm-hmm. And why did the largest companies hire the authors as they went bankrupt? <laughs> there's problems we need to be asking different questions here and uh, what we found out is that it wasn't really the books or the theories or the experts they're all supplying great tools you know great thought leadership around how to do things and what to do but what was happening is the failure rates are because human behavior wasn't changing in other words human decision was not shifting so you throw a bunch of tools at the problem you still get the problem totally because humans their decisions don't shift. So we began searching what was happening and we went to talk to some CEOs like Alexander the Great, Caesar, Cleopatra, Gandhi, Hannibal, Genghis Khan. And they all said, hey, you know, we don't waste your time on the toll stuff. We need to alter human decision and align it. And so uh-huh. your beliefs. And that's what got us to belief management. You know, one of the courses not taught in our MBA programs is, I think, the one that allows us to conquer the world.
1: <laughs> yes, there we go.
0: And so you're teaching belief management in which school now? Well, I'm
2: not teaching anymore. I ended up being on a plane too much. I left Hopkins some years ago. And now what I do is I have workshops. I do about 60 or 70 speeches a year at companies that want to bring me in or CEO groups that want to bring me in. And so that gives me a chance not only to teach, but also to learn. Because when you're with CEOs, you're able to bring in ideas. Like if I come back from Africa with some interesting concept, it gives me a place to test, mm-hmm. you know, and See, you know, what has legs, what doesn't. And so for me, it's a laboratory, but also an educational forum. So I really love it because my purpose is really to learn and teach. That's what I love.
0: Where would our listeners go to learn more about belief management? Is it in your first book, The Code of the Executive, or is it somewhere else? It's
2: sprinkled throughout. The Code of the Executive is really a replication of an ancient manuscript for teaching around death and how to unhook our beliefs that may bring us to be dysfunctional. A lot of times when we accelerate the speed of executive teams, it's really around teaching them to die die properly. I know it sounds crazy, but actually CEOs love doing this because, you know, all that dysfunctional behavior goes out the window and speed picks up. And the interesting thing is we are so used to dysfunctional behavior, we don't see it as the chronic strategic handicap that it is. You know, and I ask these CEOs and employees how much time is wasted in dysfunctional behavior. And it's oh. a wide range of 20 to 80 percent. but oh, it's, 80%. it's
1: uncanny. Yeah. Well, you know, it's hearing you talk and stories and so forth. The studies that they did with the chickens. and yes, the, the, the chickens. chickens the chicken just study. destroy each other when you keep putting just the best with the best with the best with the best. Hmm. And talk about biological <laughs> mindset. Right. They'll destroy each other.
2: It becomes like another episode of The Office, right? Yes. Which people think is a comedy, but no, it's a documentary.
0: Yes, it is. I know.
1: My kids couldn't understand why I couldn't stand to watch it. I love it. I said, I'm sorry, this is too real.
0: Yes. <laughs> just
1: get it out of my face.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah, they just didn't so, exaggerate. They didn't exaggerate enough. That was my problem. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, Don, let's say you're giving a speech. And of course, there's a wide range. What are the three major things that you're going to say about, here's where your belief system needs to go? This is what needs to happen for you to be more effective.
2: Well, first, what I do is I like to present like a learning foundation, like the research foundation, because if I just jump in and say, okay, let's talk about genetic warfare. And (laughs) it's like, I mean, people look at you like, whoa. (laughs) But so I do spend about, you know, the first, you know, 20 or 30% talking about just exposing the data. You know, we have 35,000 business books published every year. That's like a shock to the audience. Right, right. They didn't know that. I say, look, you publish more than cancer research, right? Progress in cancer research, and we're still dealing with centuries-old issues.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) But it opens the door to now start looking to get into the model around beliefs and Mm -hmm. how they drive human behavior. And the tools are fine, the what stuff and the how stuff. I mean, the books that get published on here's what you got to do, and here's how you do it, great, great, great. But what we like to focus on is how do you craft beliefs, which really takes, I think, people into a different dimension that we don't teach in our business schools or in our executive training programs. And that is art. You see, the tools are developed because we have a thing called tool seduction as a concept we put into our book. And mm-hmm. my co-author, Chris, was pulling dead bodies off of mountains. They were frozen and clutching their tools. And I said, Chris, dead companies that we do autopsies on are also clutching their tools.
1: Yes. Yes. So
2: we think the tools are going to save us. It's not. They're just tools, right? Right. But the seduction is because of safety. We think the tools will make us safe. And so we use analysis to understand the world more so we have better control. If we have more control, then we're safer. And so I think that's where the seduction comes with their tools. Yes. And yes. One of the questions that I think are important is tools are great and you need them, but are you using them or are they using you?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's a difference because you could end up being another dead climber or a dead company. And, you know, use your tools, don't let them use you. And with that, it allows us to say, well, okay, how do we then derive from beliefs? And that's really the domain of art. And art sucks. <laughs> art is dangerous. It's uncomfortable. It's not safe. There's no control. And it's so, hard
1: to touch.
2: Yeah, it's crazy. How do
1: you measure it?
2: It's like, how many people know an artist? And it's like, don't you notice these are miserable people? I mean, the, <laughs> the, you know. I the,
1: have such a daughter trying to survive in Brooklyn. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know,
2: the suffering artist syndrome, right? They're striving <laughs> to master their art. They never feel it.
1: And you I know. have to keep it pure.
2: yes. Yes. Like, yeah. It's <laughs> a life. And uh, so I train 700 CEOs a year to be miserable the rest of their life.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I have been playing a little bit in that field and have taken some courses around the more artistic view towards innovation mm. and leadership and the expansion of the mind and using art to help you do that.
2: Yeah, because what we ended up doing is we started looking at the basic tool sets that executives use. And then we looked at what are the beliefs missing? You know, what's the art missing around it? You know, so we look at like strategic planning. and Why was it failing at such high rates? And yes. you know, we began to realize it was the companies that were winning were the ones that were outmaneuvering the thought leaders and the experts and the consultants that were going in different directions because they were being driven by more intuition Competitive intuition. Yes, and so most strategic plans we find are tactical; they're not strategic.
1: Oh, totally operational. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stay within that path, <laughs> <laughs> and then if you try to break out, or someone has a more artistic thought, often they're beaten down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it goes back to that fear again. Yeah. Then um, we're not safe. You're taking us into unsafe territory.
2: I think it's what's interesting. Yeah, it, I think for entrepreneurs, the reason so entrepreneurship, because I'm doing a lot of research for this next book, is uh, they have a level to accommodate risk because risk is fear, and it's not for everybody. Right. And it's almost biological, as what we're finding out. If you cannot mitigate that fear, you won't move forward.
0: So, what are some of the things that you're doing to help leaders craft beliefs of their? teams versus craft strategies that don't get implemented
2: well first i think if you can develop the intuitive strategy in other words throughout history and even today by shifting the beliefs around okay how do we segment our markets i mean why are we using industry standards why don't we just choose a new way to segment and then where are we going to go in that battlefield and then who's the real threat there i mean these are all beliefs that need to mold and so we do strategic planning it's more of that engagement and it's a breakthrough because when they get the epiphany of here's the business we're really in and here's where we're going together and here's our main threat and how we're going to have maneuver. Now you can start doing things like, okay, how do we structure for this? You know, how do we execute for that? I mean, this all that now becomes easier to define and, and implement. So we try to work with strategy first, because if that's not clear, all the rest doesn't make any sense. You know, I don't care if you want to restructure or change your culture, who cares? What does winning mean and how are you going to do it?
1: And you lead them through a questioning process, some exercises around mentally challenging that.
2: Yeah. Before we even get in the room, we do a lot of private interviews, a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, analysis of their behavior. And we design like a two-day kickoff event where Mm -hmm. these these questions are previously constructed to lead them to those areas. Those areas are, are obstacles in their thinking.
1: Love it. Yeah.
2: Changing them, But it's, uh, you know, it takes different types of techniques. I mean, sometimes wow. we're at night around a campfire reading Beowulf. So it really depends on what's needed for the group. But once yeah. they get strategic winning, it's such a fine edge. And how they're going to do it, it changes everything.
1: Yep. It
0: really does. That's great. So tell us about your latest book, which is High Altitude Leadership. Does that book incorporate a lot of these ideas? And what's the, uh, the genesis, the background of that book?
2: The genesis was we were looking at, actually, it was death zone environments. I was climbing with Chris in the Andes. He was Mm -hmm. leading an expedition. Uh, We were climbing the highest altitude volcano in the world. And Chris, we joke about this, like, "Well, climbing is a ridiculous sport, but climbing an active volcano is really, now you're out of control. (laughs) Uh, It was during that we got the idea of, uh, because NBC was going to film him doing K2, which is the Death Mountain. It's uh, ten times more dangerous than Everest, and that was how we wrote the book. He was going to engage that and self film it, and then uh, link with me via satellite. And we did the book together.
1: Wow! Funny
2: body parts and frozen climbers. He's worth talking and learning about what humans do in death zone environments, and that's where the book came to be born because. He's there risking his life on this death mountain. I'm back in my living room. having. A- I was
1: going to say, talk about commit ultimate virtual teaming project.
2: Right, right. But it was, a, it was a risk I was willing to take. and I
0: might spill my coffee. <laughs> it's hot.
1: Uh, <laughs> fabulous.
2: But, you know, it took off and, uh, and it became a great research project working with Chris. He was a brilliant partner in this project
0: what are some of the insights that your readers get from reading a high-altitude leadership? What's interesting,
2: that leadership is fraught with danger. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: and we really wanted to
2: take a look at that in different ways. I mean, one of those dangers is like tool seduction, as an example. And so when you know, leaders go through this, they don't realize, like, am I really using this or is it using me? I mean, the story is that... Chris was able to bring into the book makes it read like a novel. It was exciting, just you know, having him go through this. But yeah, we didn't realize it, but you see things. We saw arrogance. We saw selfishness. We saw humans exhibit all the normal behaviors you can exhibit at sea level, but it was in a much more risky environment. Wow. It was a great laboratory to explore and see what was actually happening. And so, I think the book took off because we were able to expose you know, a lot of this. And so the chapters are around that. And we used the samurai stuff, the fear of death. And uh, because there was one death, uh, which is actually very low for K2 Summit. But there's a great part of the story where all the teams froze from all these countries. And because this Sherpa inexplicably, highly experienced, slid off the ledge. And this, you know, smounds like 8,000 meters. But, you know, Chris, once he accepted the death and moved forward, it freed everyone else up to keep going. Wow. And so the stories like that it was really a uh, powerful journey writing this book.
0: Great. Thanks for sharing that. One last question before we go. What are you thinking about right now that the rest of us are missing?
2: <laughs> it's not the first time we've led humans and we certainly have uh, done this before. <laughs> but as we got more into this and as I began looking at uh, like entrepreneurship, You know, one of the things that I'm remembering now, uh, our species memory, is that winning does not come necessarily from doing things right. And we have a lot of books on how to win. you got to do this right. right. you got to do that right. And all these books. And here's all the things they did right. All the great companies did this right. But when we pulled back uh, and did the autopsies, (laughs) we found that most success comes from how you lose. Yep. And entrepreneurs that were great, when we look at their history, it's a path of mistakes and errors and failed assumptions and frustrations. And yet those were the moments where they became entrepreneurs. Those were the moments where they adapted, they learned, they picked themselves up Uh, was a great samurai quote, like seven times down, eight times up. They just kept getting up. And I think that's what we should be teaching is how to lose powerfully. And that's in my next book. So that's where I'm
0: thinking now. Do you have a title yet for your next book or not yet? Not yet. The working
2: title is the, you know, the winning path, you know, how to lose powerfully and what we learned from 30,000 CEOs. Cause I've been really fortunate to be in front of that many CEOs over the past five years. So they really gifted me a lot just by allowing me to teach them, but also to learn from them. Yeah. So I'm trying to pull all that together.
0: Great. So how can we find you and learn more about you on the internet? The main site that we're using,
2: the domain is sagaleadership.com. And we're trying to pull everything into
0: that. Great. Well, this uh, has been delightful. <laughs> Jenny is applauding.
1: I've got the last module for my doctoral class next week. There semester.
0: she goes. It's all about her class. That's all. It's all about that.
2: I'm glad I can contribute to academics. And
0: so thank you for... Uh, I'll bring you in. I,
1: I'll make them listen to this.
0: Yeah. You guys are so close to each other. You actually can bring them in. Well,
1: we could, yeah. (laughs) That's
0: true. I know. That is so cool. Well, great. So, Don, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's been so insightful, and I love people that go against the grain. So thank you so much, Jenny, for co-hosting. And so to our listeners, wow, this has been a really fun one. I think this is our last recording for 2020. Too. This will appear in 2023. So please, if you've really enjoyed, share this with your friends, your colleagues, your family. And we look forward to seeing you next time on our next episode of Team Anywhere. <laughs>